find Revelation 3, since we've already read through that, and I want us to begin this morning's message with a thought, or actually a quote, rather. There is a reverse correlation between the comfortability of Christianity and its vibrancy. When the Christian church is more comfortable and cultural, she tends to be weak. When she is uncomfortable and countercultural, she tends to be strong. I believe the latter is how she was meant to be. It's a quote from Brett McCracken's book, Uncomfortable, the Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community. I would encourage you to pick up a copy. In that book, what Brett McCracken does is he diagnoses our cultural idolatry of comfort in the church. How much we like the church to be comfortable and to fit us. This appears to have been the state of this morning's church in Sardis as well. It was unthreatened like per, or by persecution, by, like some of its contemporaries. It was unbothered by doctrinal concerns or issues within the church. It was unconcerned with sin. In short, it was asleep. This church in Sardis was asleep, and Christ's words to this church and to us this morning will be, wake up. And this isn't that unfamiliar of a context to us, is it? We live in a situation, in a country, in a culture that isn't really overly burdened by persecution, isn't really over-concerned with doctrine, and isn't really overly worried about sin. And the threat to the church at Sardis is similar to the threat that we face as Faith Bible Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so this morning, I want one question to guide our discussion as we look at this church in Sardis. And that is, what does it take for a person, what does it take for a church to wake up spiritually? What does it take for a person or a church to wake up spiritually? We're going to wrestle with that question in the church at Sardis together this morning, but before we get into that, let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our discussion. Father, we've already admitted our dependence upon you in both what we've sung and in taking the elements of communion. Lord, we're thankful for the gift of salvation through your Son, for the gospel, for the joy it is to sing praises to you. As we study your word together this morning, we just ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would guide our time together. This is another challenging message, but it's a loving message that you've given to your church, both Sardis and us today. So Father, guide our discussion, help it to be fruitful, help it to be encouraging, help it to be challenging in the ways it should be. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, let me attempt to try to catch you up to speed on where we're at. This sermon series we've entitled, Dear Church, Seven Letters to Christ's Bride. In the first three chapters of Revelation, Christ writes seven letters to seven specific churches that are located in Asia Minor. In those, he speaks as the bridegroom writing a letter to his bride, the church. He gives them compliments for what they're doing right. He gives them concerns and corrections for the things they need to work on. And he ultimately reassures them of his commitment to them. Over the last few weeks, we've studied four churches. To the church at Ephesus, Christ's words were love. They'd grown cold, they'd forgotten their first love, and Christ says, love. To the church at Smyrna, who was, in, who was undergoing incredible persecution, 
Christ's words were, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Even though more persecution is coming, don't fear. Two weeks ago, we looked at the church at Pergamum that had begun to compromise to their culture and began to look like the culture around them. And to them, Christ says, don't compromise. Don't let down your guard on doctrinal and sin things. And then probably going from that to the church at Thyatira, which had seemed to miss the message to the church at Pergamum, Christ says, be intolerant. Not intolerant in a bad way, not intolerant as if they don't care about each other, but be intolerant of the sin inside of you and inside of your church. Now we move on to this fifth letter, and it's not getting any easier as we look at the church at Sardis. Now, if you're unfamiliar, if you haven't been with us, I'm using the same outline every week as we look at these churches. What we're going to see in the first part of verse 1 is we're going to see the letter's address. Much like the outside of an envelope, who is this letter to? Who is this letter from? We're going to take a look at Sardis and the church there. We're also going to see the letter's aim in the latter part of verse 1 through verse 3. What does Christ have to say to this church specifically? And what does he have to say to us, I would add? And then lastly, we'll see the letter's assurance, Christ's commitment to his church, his encouragement to them at the end of the letter in verses 4 through 6. The letter's address, the letter's aim, the letter's assurance, and no, I did not get a typo on the letter's aim. There are no compliments. It's just concerns and corrections. This is going to be challenging. You ready? Let's dive in. All right, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, Right. Every week we're asking, what do we know about the situation, the context, the church that this letter is being written to? What do we know about Sardis? Sardis was a wealthy city. This was due to a couple of things. The first was they had a thriving commerce around wool and the creating of cloth. But also, they literally had a spring that poured out gold close to Sardis. It was a gold mine that as the spring went, gold would come out of it. So wealthy was the city of Sardis that it is thought to be one of the first cities in Asia Minor to mint gold and silver coins, to actually make their money out of gold and silver because it was so prevalent. We also know that the city at Sardis had a temple to Artemis and Sibyl. They had a fascination with their fertility goddesses and with life and death and that sphere of things. But the most important thing that we must note about the city of Sardis, it was a military stronghold. Due to a natural slope that rose to kind of a plateau where the city was located, they had defense on three sides and only had to defend their city on one side. And so it formed a natural stronghold. And the city was incredibly difficult to conquer and to take. In fact, in the ancient world, it became a euphemism for doing the impossible to say it's like capturing Sardis. Much like we would say it'll happen when pigs fly, they would say it'll happen when you capture Sardis. Their position in this natural fortress was so strong that that's the way people referred to them. However, in the few hundred years leading up to where John is writing here in Revelation, the city had experienced a decline. The city had experienced two major defeats. And this will come up a little bit later, we'll talk about it later, but both defeats had occurred because of lazy watchmen. They thought they were impenetrable on their fortress, and they only watched the one side. And what happened in both situations is the sieging army climbed the backside, opened the gates, and the city was taken. And this had occurred on two instances, and the city had started to decline. 
A major earthquake in 17 AD had demolished the city and it had to be rebuilt. And then in 26 AD, Smyrna had won the right to build the temple to Caesar. If you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about that. Sardis tried for the same thing and they lost that bid. So this was a city that was strong and wealthy and it had once experienced unparalleled prominence in the region, but it was now declining. It was more of what you might think of as a has-been city. A city that had wonderful years in the past, but their current reality didn't look quite as impressive. Now, what do we know about the church in Sardis? What do we know about this church? The reality is, just like the last few weeks, we just don't know much. We do not know hardly anything about the church in Sardis except for this letter in Revelation. But what we will find out is that the church in Sardis had begun to look much like the city in which they inhabited. A church that at one point had a thriving, exciting ministry taking place and was now a bit more of a has-been church. And to this church, Christ describes himself in two ways. One will be familiar, and one will be a little bit confusing, but we'll wrestle with that. Look at verse 1. And to the angel in the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We get two descriptions. He has the seven spirits of God, and he has the seven stars. He has Christ having here. It emphasizes his divine control. We've emphasized that in the past in this series. That Christ is over all of his churches. He is sovereign over everything. But it says he has the seven spirits of God. And this seems a little strange to us. But this isn't the first time in Revelation this has come up. Go back to chapter 1, verse 4. In the introduction to the letter... John writing, we read, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is the one, or who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. In that introduction, we see a glimpse into the Trinity. There's the one who was and the one who is to come, God the Father probably, the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit, and then we see Jesus Christ. It's likely a reference to Zechariah 4, 1 through 10, that the emphasis is that the Spirit does the work. What, what this introduction gives us, this idea of the seven spirits of God, emphasizes the Holy Spirit's perfect divine influence in the lives of believers and His church. The seven spirits is meant to indicate the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And Christ says, I have the seven spirits. He also says, I hold the seven stars. This should be a more familiar illustration to us. I hold the seven stars. We ran into this in chapter 1, verse 20, where we learned that the seven stars were the seven angels of the churches. We talked about this in the church at Ephesus. Now again, I want to just say that it's not entirely clear whether these are angelic representatives, human representatives, or indicative of the spirit of the church, but regardless, Christ is re-emphasizing his authority and sovereignty over the church. He says, I hold the seven stars. So Christ introduces this letter to Sardis, this church who is going to get no compliments from Christ in the letter, by saying he exercises absolute control over his church by the perfect divine influence of the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? I hold the seven spirits. I hold the seven stars. I exercise absolute control over my churches by the influence of my spirit. 
Every week we've said we're going to look at three things as far as takeaways for us as believers today. What are we to believe? What should we think? What should we understand? How are we to behave? How should we live our lives as believers? And lastly, how do we endure until Christ comes back? And at this point, I want to pause for a moment because I think we overlook this essential teaching. Christ introducing himself as the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And I want us to pause and say, what should we believe? This is vital for us to understand what we should believe in order to hear the rest of the words of this letter. Let's start individually. Spiritual vitality is only possible through active submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual vitality, being awake as a believer, is only possible through the active submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. Many of us personally long for a vibrant spiritual walk, but we spend little time praying for the Spirit's work in our lives, and we spend less time focusing on a posture to receive the Spirit's ministry in our lives. I'm not talking some sort of a strained sensationalism around the Holy Spirit, but we have a tendency to ignore the Holy Spirit entirely, don't we? We have a tendency to pretend like there's God the Father and God the Son in the Trinity, and the Spirit is just kind of some force that we can ignore. Christ introduces himself to this church by saying, I have the seven spirits of God. Spiritual vitality is only possible through active submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. But corporately, what about a church? We're asking, how do we wake up as a church too, corporately? Revival in a church takes a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. We have to recognize this. Revival in a church takes a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be forced or manipulated through human means, and it is not the result of finding the right programs or strategy for ministry. Revival in a church takes a supernatural awakening in that church. Not long ago, I was listening to an interview focused on the Great Awakening. And they talked about how when interviewed, Jonathan Edwards, who was a vital piece of that taking place, in, in, in the Great Awakening, said, I can't really explain it. We didn't really do anything different. We preached the Word faithfully. We prayed faithfully. We ministered to one another faithfully. And the Spirit did something miraculous. So we didn't make it happen. In the same way, Christ reminds the church here that what they need is a work of the Spirit. Revival in a church takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember in our own lives and in our church, we need a work of the Spirit if we're going to wake up. And we'll see that this is essential for the church at Sardis. If they have any hope, they have to be focused on submission to the Spirit's influence in their church. And so we'll move from the letter's address to the letter's aim. Look at verse 1, the second part. You probably have a paragraph break here. He says, I know your works. And we go, okay, great. We're off to a good start here. Every other church, except for a few, have been noted, I know your works. And then he goes on to tell them all the things that they're doing well. 
Unfortunately, not with the church at Sardis. He says, I know your works. But this phrase, instead of becoming a segue into all the compliments he has for the church, is actually an ironic twist that emphasizes their spiritual deadness. And he gives them two concerns. He says, I know your works. First, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. When Chuck read it, you heard it in his translation, this literally means you have the name of being alive, but you are alive in name only. You are alive in name only. This church, what likely had happened is they were in a place where they didn't have to worry too much about persecution, and they didn't have to worry too much about doctrine, and they didn't have to worry too much about sin, and they became really comfortable. And as that comfort began to grow, they moved from comfort to complacency. Where they weren't really worried about the things that the Bible teaches, and they weren't really worried about their corporate witness. And Christ says to them, not only have you moved from comfort to complacency, you've moved from complacency to comatose. As a church, you are now comatose. He uses hyperbole here because you're going to find out later that there was still something alive in this church, He says, you have the reputation of looking alive, but you're dead. You're living on your past laurels. You're looking back to the past and saying, see, we used to do faithful ministry, and everybody still thinks we are. He says, but you're dead. But you're dead inside. They had become a has-been church. Not that long ago, I was sitting in a room with Pastor Eric Raymond, who is a pastor in the New England area close to Harvard and Boston. And he talked about how all sorts of historic churches in that part of the country, churches that had been founded hundreds of years ago, are today being turned into apartments. They're being turned into apartments because the churches have died a long time ago. Christ looks at the church at Sardis and he says, you look like you're alive. Your building looks great on the outside, but you are dead. Now jump down a little. We're going to look at the second part of verse, or the first part of verse 2 here, but then he issues another concern at the end of verse 2. He says, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. He said, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now he doesn't specify precisely what works he's talking about here. What comes to mind is all the works in the past that the churches have been commended for. Their patient endurance and their toil and their doctrinal discernment and their effort all sorts of things that they've been encouraged for. And he says, your works are incomplete. When we look at this, we look at the fact that they probably had lost their boldness to share Christ outside of the church, especially. They had lost their corporate worthness because the church looked exactly like the surrounding community. Christ looks at this church and he says, you look good on the outside, but I have weighed your works and I have found them wanting. I have found your obedience wanting as a church of mine in Sardis. This ushers up a courtroom imagery, this idea I have found. It's like I decreed, I have have weighed in, and I have issued a verdict. It says the verdict is you've been found wanting. A good illustration of this might be what you may be familiar with, the company Enron. In the year 2000, Enron was highly praised as one of the most 
successful countries in the United States. Wall Street was thrilled with them. They were a Fortune 500 company. They were doing everything right. Their stock was trading at almost $100 a share. But by the end of 2001, their stock was down to 26 cents a share, and they filed for bankruptcy. Why? Because for years, the company of Enron had embezzled money and had pretended like they were making money and fooled everyone. They'd fooled the commissions, they'd fooled Wall Street, they'd fooled the American people. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were bankrupt. Christ looks at the church at Sardis and says, you look good on the outside. Maybe even what you've done in the past looks good, but inside you're dead. Inside I have found your obedience to be wanting. But rather than going straight from the verdict to the sentencing, Christ instead looks at Sardis, and just like he has every week with every concern, he says, let me give you the correction. Rather than just sentencing you and being done with you, I love you too much, let me give you the correction for your church. We see that in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wake up. Be vigilant. So we said we were going to bring back the idea of Sardis's military defeats. This would have been so tangible to the people of Sardis, who would have known their city had fallen to enemy invaders twice previously because of the, whether literal or metaphorical, sleeping of their guards. Their lookouts had fallen asleep on the walls and their city had been taken. A city that otherwise would have been impenetrable. He looks at this church and says, wake up. Renew your spiritual diligence. Renew your pursuit of God. And strengthen what remains. Strengthen carries the idea of literally to support or establish, to fortify what remains before it dies. He says, your trend line is going downward, and if you don't wake up and strengthen that little remnant that remains, your church is dead. And then he issues three final corrections in verse 3, and these should sound very familiar if you were with us a few weeks ago. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. It sounds just like the church in Ephesus, doesn't it? Remember, return, repent. Same formula that he gave to the church at Ephesus, except he tells them to remember something slightly different. Instead of remember the works you had at first, he says, remember what you've heard and have received. This likely indicates the apostolic teaching and tradition. What he's saying is, remember what has been passed down to you from Christ the disciples, to their followers, to you. He's saying, remember the gospel. He's saying you have lost the gospel. The gospel that Christ, that we all fail to meet up to Christ's perfect standard of sinless perfection. Every single one of us, through our sins of omission or sins of commission, through our father's sins, through our own sins, have fallen short of perfection by God's standard. But Christ, as the only man who could, came and paid the penalty for our sins and died on our behalf. 
And if we place our faith and trust in Him alone, we can have salvation. Churches die when they abandon the gospel. Churches die when they abandon the gospel, either in profession or in practice. The church at Thyatira had abandoned the gospel in profession. They had said, we don't care about doctrine. We don't care about correct teaching. We're not worried about any of that. And they had done away with the gospel in what they'd said. The church at Ephesus had abandoned the gospel in practice. They'd said, we proclaim a gospel, but our actions have no grace. Churches die when they abandon the gospel, either in profession or practice. And he says, remember what you've been taught. Remember the gospel and keep it. Return to it. Return to believing and doing the very thing that saved you to begin with. Many of us have a tendency to think that once we're saved, we move beyond the gospel. We move on to greater things. And there are other teachings, don't get me wrong, but every single one of us needs to return to the gospel. Every day. Every day. And lastly, he says, repent. And we just can't get away from this word, can we? It just keeps coming up in church after church after church. We've said before, repentance means three things. Admission of fault, expression of sorrow, and a change of behavior. We have to admit we were wrong. We have to express to God that we're sorry for it. And we have to change our behavior. And all three things require a work of the Spirit in our hearts, don't they? We don't admit we're wrong in our own sinful nature. We don't express that we're sorry to God for sinning in our own sinful nature. And we definitely do not change our behavior in our own effort. He says, remember, return, and repent. Or, look at the last part of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It says, if you won't wake up, if your guards continue to sleep, I will come in judgment. He's warned other churches that he may be coming. He's saying failure to obey will result in judgment as a church. And then he says, and you will not know the hour I will come against you. Now two things here make some people think of Christ's second coming, the parousia, he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that I will come. That should sound familiar from 1 Thessalonians 5. However, I don't think what he's speaking to here is the second coming of Christ, the final judge, excuse me, judgment of Christ. I think he's talking about a visitation of Christ, not physical, but to bring judgment. And so it's similar to Christ's second coming, where it's imminent and it's unexpected, but I think this is something different here. He says, if you don't wake up, I will come to you in judgment as a church. See, much like the city that the church at Sardis occupied, the church at Sardis had been comfortable. They've become very comfortable in the city that they lived. And they moved from comfort to complacency, and they moved from complacency to comatose. 
They were asleep as individuals. They were asleep as a church. And Christ warns them to wake up and repent or He will deal with them as a church. Which I think reminds us of a couple of things that we need to keep in mind as well. In addition to what we're to believe, this reminder that we needed to be dependent upon the Spirit to work in our lives and in our church, how are we to behave? What should we take from this encouragement, from this challenge that Christ gives the church at Sardis? This is going to be really eloquent. Wake up. Individually, we need to wake up. Some of us have bought the lie that we can just walk around in our Christian life half asleep and it doesn't matter. Whether we have begun to pursue other things, work or school or activities or a job or a relationship or anything else and we think we can put our spiritual life on the back burner and Christ will just wait until we come back to Him. To us, Christ says, wake up. We pursue spiritual renewal by dealing with the sin in our lives, repentance. By remembering the gospel and by prayerfully seeking Christ. We can't force spiritual renewal in our own hearts, but we pursue it by dealing with the sin that's getting in the way of our relationship with God, by returning to the truth of the gospel, and by seeking Christ. How do we seek Christ? See, this this isn't popular in our common day and age to talk about spiritual disciplines. Because discipline doesn't get a lot of press right now, right? If it's convenient, I'll do it. If nothing else gets in the way, I'll do it. But the idea of spiritual discipline doesn't get a lot of press. How do we pursue Christ? We engage with His Word. (laughs) We talk to Him in prayer. And we engage with His body. The same thing believers have been doing for the last 2,000 years, but we want a five-step book for how to become a a fast-growing Christian. Christ says, wake up. How about corporately? To the church corporate, Christ's words are the same. Wake up. As a church, wake up. We pursue church revival by dealing with our sin, James 5 says, confess your sins to one another by preaching the gospel, which I hope we're doing here right now, and by prayerfully seeking Christ together. By seeking Christ together. It's not complicated. Remember, return, and repent. But just like Thyatira, we learn that even in this challenging church, even in this church that Christ accuses of being nearly dead, there was a faithful remnant. And Christ addresses them in the letter's assurance. Look at verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He comforts the believers in Sardis who have stayed faithful. He said there are yet some who have remained faithful, even in this largely dead church. They have not soiled their garments. This emphasizes purity. And they are worthy, or more literally, they are shown to be worthy. And then we get the standard explanation that we've come to expect. The one who conquers 
will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He says to the one who conquers, we've said it every single week, to conquer is to participate in Christ's victory. To follow Christ where he leads. The reward will be three things. First, they will be clothed thus in white garments. This connects to what we read just before that. They have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white both Revelation 7 and Revelation 19 at the marriage stuff of the Lamb, this white garment that we are given is indicative of a purity that is given by the washing of the blood of Christ. And it likely indicates a victory processional where those involved would wear white. It says they'll be clothed in white. They will together participate in Christ's victory and purity. And I will never blot His name out of the book of life. The book of life, if you're unfamiliar, is a common theme that we see throughout Scripture. It's the idea of a book where our names are written as those who have placed our faith and hope in Christ. So they'll never blot their names out of the book of life. We see that the reward, again, for faithfulness and perseverance is eternal life. That has come up every single week. Have you picked up on that? That to every church, whether it's good or bad or a mixed bag, Christ's offer is eternal life for faithfulness. His reminder is that their reward is not in this world, it's in eternal life. And lastly, he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In Matthew 10, Christ speaking says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Christ is saying that the reward for those that are faithful is that Christ will confess their name to the Father. It's as if Christ is standing there in heaven at the entry gate, reading from the book of life and saying, yep, he's with me. Yep, she's with me. Yep, he's with me. Have you ever vouched for someone to get into a club or maybe into a party or something like that? You're saying, my reputation is on the line, they're with me. I will be blamed if they mess everything up. You're saying, they get my reputation. That's precisely what Christ is saying here. See, when I will confess their name before my Father and before His angels... It indicates our participation and affiliation with Christ. Saying Christ stands there and those that have been faithful and persevered, those that have participated in Christ's victory by washing their clothes white in the shed blood of Christ, Christ will say, they're with me. They don't deserve to be here, but they're with me. And he wraps up by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How will we respond? And I love, we haven't highlighted it as we've moved through, but this week we, it, we have to stop for a moment and say, every week it has been, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We haven't had time to highlight it every week, but it just reemphasizes this need for the Spirit's working in his church to accomplish his purposes. It says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. To this faithful minority in Sardis, Christ commits that those who are shown to be worthy will share in his purity, his victory, and his eternal life. Which begs the question, how do we endure? How do we persevere individually and corporately as a church? What is Christ's message from the church at Sardis to us today? First, individually, and then we'll talk as a church. Individually, don't settle for a comfortable walk with Christ. Don't settle for a comfortable walk with Christ. Some of us have bought the lie that to be a believer is an easygoing path that results in us getting the American dream and the things in this life we want. That's not Christ taking up your cross and follow me. That's Oprah with a little bit of Jesus. Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, die to yourself. Don't settle for a comfortable walk with Christ. Dependence upon the Spirit is counterintuitive. It's not natural for us in our fleshly condition. Repentance is uncomfortable. It makes us squirm to think of our sin and to think of having to confess that to God. The gospel is countercultural. It will offend people. It will offend you. And pursuing Christ is costly. It will cost you something. Not eternally, but in this life. Don't settle for a comfortable walk with Christ. How about as a church? Don't settle for comfortable church engagement. Don't settle for a comfortable vision of what the church is. Something that's fun for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and that's it. Something that gives me a healthy dose of a little bit of conviction and a little bit of encouragement and I get to sing and then I'm out. That is not the church that Christ shed His blood for. If God begins to work in the lives of people the way we're talking about, being a part of the church will be uncomfortable. Because there will be unbelievers asking questions that they don't really understand. There will be new believers making a mess of things. And there will be long-term believers who are continuing to confess sins that make all of us uncomfortable. If God works in a church the way He should work in Sardis, that place is going to be uncomfortable at times. But the work of the Spirit is going to be inexplainable. We've said before, if you can explain how it happened, it wasn't God. The reality is, in church, if you can explain how it happened, it wasn't God. But if God begins to work, if God begins to move, if the Spirit begins to renew spiritual vitality in the lives of people and see revival across a church, the work of the Spirit will be inexplainable. In short, the Christian life isn't supposed to be comfortable. Some of us have bought that lie, but the reality is personal spiritual vibrancy and church-wide revival are extremely difficult and uncomfortable. 
But Christ's reminder to this church that was dying and needed to wake up is, it's worth it. It's uncomfortable, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to Sardis, and thank you for your words for us today, this morning. Father, we confess that it's easy to become comfortable and complacent. It's easy to be much like the church at Sardis, thinking that our walk with Christ doesn't cost us anything, it doesn't mean a whole lot to our day in and day out lives. If that's the case for us, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, that you would help us to see Christ's warning to his church, that you would remind us that this is a loving letter from the bridegroom to his bride, longing for her to be healthy. Father, wake us up if we're asleep. For your son's name, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.